uh, Arcade Baptist Church, and God has blessed that church through the years uh, with a remarkable ministry, and he's been there about two and a half, I think approaching three years, pastoring that great church. It's been my joy to be there once and preach. He's never invited me back. Um, maybe he will someday. Daniel Henderson, let's welcome him. Good to have you, Daniel. You dudes are moving this one? All right. They're making me use the real pulpit today after watching the other guys struggle with a music stand, so here we go. It is really great to be here, and I would uh, again reiterate on behalf of all the guys who have been up here so far and who will be, that we really count it a privilege. It's a highlight of our year, not only to come and to minister to you, but to be with one another and uh, to share together with John, who continues to be just a tremendous, tremendous example for those of us who are out there laboring in the Word and doctrine week by week and seeking to serve the Lord faithfully, and we truly are grateful for, uh, again, the joy of being with Him and move this forward a little bit further so I don't fall backwards, all right? I want you to take your Bible, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, and uh, hope you brought your Bible tonight. We are really uh, focusing, I think, together as a team this year, perhaps even more so than before, dialoguing very openly about what we're going to preach uh, I think most of us came with a, a briefcase full of sermons, uh, wondering, now, what are the other guys going to do? Lynn Crowley had it made. He could do anything he wants, and we all have to react to him. But really wanting not to compete, but to complement one another, and to have the opportunity to build in a way that the Lord will create a tapestry of understanding in our own hearts that will lead to greater, greater obedience and a deep love for Him in response to His love for us. And uh, so we're excited tonight to share in a way that I think will really build on what you heard this morning and trust will be an encouragement to you. I've got a funny habit. I like people to stand when I read God's Word. Would you do that? You've been sitting for a while. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Actually, I think I'll begin uh, back at verse 34 and read our text and then we'll get into it tonight. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Would you pray with me? Father, tonight we do pray that you would awaken within us a fresh understanding of your love. As your word says, we love because you first loved us, such that we will understand how we can better love you, not in word, but in deed and in truth. And so tonight we give to you this time, we give to you the heart and voice and lips of this servant. We ask that you would be honored in all that is said and all that is understood as a response to that and in all that we will go on to do in our lifestyle because we have gathered in these days around the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Over Christmas, my uh, boys, with their mother's assistance, uh, gave me a, uh, a book entitled The Road Ahead by Bill Gates. Now, they know that I'm learning a lot about the Internet. I'm not a, uh, a uh, mouse potato. That's the new word now. Instead of a couch potato, if you're into computers, you're a mouse potato. I'm not that yet, but I'm enjoying the process. 
And as I have been reading it over these various weeks, I have been intrigued with some things that I think are particularly interesting. I've done something I've never done before. I've actually brought the book up here with me. I wasn't sure I could talk to people in the hotel into making a copy for me since it's technically illegal. So uh, I brought it up here. I want to share with you a few thoughts that he uh, gives to us about what he sees in the future. He lives about five years ahead of the rest of us when it comes to technology. And it has a particularly applicable point as we think of the text we've just read. He talks about the fact that most of us understand, at least when it comes to television and video and media, what he calls synchronous time. In other words, when he was growing up, he talks about the Ed Sullivan Show. It used to be on at 8 o'clock on Sunday nights, and if you wanted to see it, you had to be there. With the, uh, obviously, the introduction of the VCR, that changed a little bit. Now you can videotape a show if you're not uh, there at the time in which it comes over the broadcast networks, and you can see it at a different time. And he calls that asynchronous communication. In other words, at a different time, you can get communication that came out uh, sometime earlier. Obviously, in communication uh, from a face-to-face -face standpoint, it used to be all synchronous. If you wanted to hear John MacArthur, perhaps in that day and age, you'd have to be here when John was here and listen to John speak. But now you can get a tape, you can get a video, whatever the case may be. As he begins to talk about what is coming our way, he tells us that there will be the time in which one particular coaxial or a fiber uh, optic uh, line will come into our home and provide not only telephone services but computer services and the television services and it will ultimately all come on one screen that dominates the landscape of our living room. And he says this about it and I quote, he says, television shows will continue to be broadcast as they are today for synchronous consumption. He says, after they air these shows, as well as thousands of movies and virtually all other kinds of video, will be available whenever you want to view them. You'll be able to watch the new episode of Seinfeld at 9 p.m. on Thursday night, or 9.13 p.m., or 9.45 p.m., or 11 a.m. on Saturday. If you don't care for his brand of humor, uh, there will be thousands of other choices. Your requests will be for a specific movie or television program. Episodes will, will be registered and bits will be routed to you across the network. The information highway will make it feel as though all the intermediary machinery between you and the object of your interest has been removed. Very interesting insight. You indicate what you want and presto, you get it. It's an amazing thought that given the obvious desires of mankind and the obvious complexity of choices that we face today, it will become worse and worse in the sense that whatever we want, we can have it and we can have it now. Whether it's something in a library, whether it's a video, whether it's an old movie, whether it's a, a soundbite from an audio recording, whatever it is. He even goes on to talk about uh, computer wallets that we'll all carry that will replace everything. In this one little wallet with a screen, you will be able to know exactly where you are. You will be able to get all your email. You can watch a movie while you're standing in line just by pushing a button. As you get it over this uh, technological superhighway, uh, you will pay with that wallet. All your money will be digitized, he predicts. You'll walk up to the grocery store and plug your little wallet in there and they'll charge uh, it all against your account. You may get an email from your son over in Ohio and then say, he says, Dad, I need 10 bucks. So you plug it in. Zip, he's got 10 bucks right there in his video wallet. And it's an amazing thing as you think about where we're headed. But he makes one comment, and with this I close this particular illustration. He says, most viewers can understand video on demand and will welcome the freedom it provides. He says it has the potential to be what in computer parlance is called killer applications for the highway. He says a killer application is a use of technology so attractive to consumers that it fuels market forces and makes an invention all but indispensable even if it wasn't anticipated by the inventor. As you think about the killer applications 
that are going to be coming into your life and my life and the lives of those whom we are called to minister to in the generations ahead. It's very obvious that in this information age there is an increased and unprecedented competition for the attention and the affection of the human heart. It is going to get madder and wilder and more competitive and, and, and the graphics of it all will just be more and more attractive in competing for the attention and the affection of the human heart. Also in this information age, there will obviously be a greater complexity to the choices of the heart. With all that you can get, it's an amazing thing to even try to comprehend what is available to you. And obviously as you go through life, there are many things that are contradictory, hard to grasp, and it'll get worse in the information age. I, uh, on my internet, have a friend who sends me humorous anecdotes two or three times a week. Every pastor's best friend, right? Like the guy who was there praying over a sermon one day, and he said, Lord, please give me a sermon to go with this great joke I just heard. You know, that kind of a guy. Always sending this stuff in. But a man who was confused by some of the inputs he's had, he, he said, for instance, uh, why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? You ever thought about that? That make any sense at all? He said, why isn't phonetic spelled the way it sounds? <laughs> For you English buffs, I don't know. That's a good question. He goes on to say, how does the guy who drives the snowplow get to work in the mornings? You ever thought about that? Profound, isn't it, Scott? Scott was telling us he was uh, Sunday morning uh, in the wonderful state of uh, Illinois, uh, clearing his driveway with a snowblower and five degrees below zero. It's a great way to start your Lord's Day, isn't it? He says that the 7-Eleven is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Why are there locks on the doors? You ever thought about that? Perplexities. He says if a cow laughed, would milk come out her nose? You ever thought about that? That's profound. <laughs> Go tickle a cow sometime and find out, right? He, he asked, why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? Doesn't make any sense. Why is it that when you transport something by car, it's called a shipment. When you transport something by ship, it's called cargo. Doesn't make any sense. He says, why is it that when you're driving and looking for an address, you turn the radio down? in order to see it better, right? And one last one, he says, and I've done that. Be quiet, I can't see the map, right? He says, you know that little indestructible black box on airplanes? He said, have you wonder, ever wonder why they don't make a whole plane out of that stuff? Sure make me feel better, wouldn't it, you, Joe? And there are perplexities, and in the, in the information highway and this information age in which we live, there are so many issues which really are non-issues. Trying to decide between the two is the, the challenge, isn't it? I mean, even in the Christian world, you go through the average bookstore, not yours here, but, but you, you see uh, all these bizarre categories. I mean, you got some good ones like evangelism, eschatology, and then you got eating disorders, discipleship, devotions, diaries, decision-making, prophecy, prayer, preaching, personal planning, healing, homemaking, husband-taming, humility, men's manuals, women's novels, children's crayons book, passages for your pet. I mean, it, it's amazing. And when this information age comes upon us, we, we all say to ourselves, what really counts, Right? What inputs do I take seriously and which ones do I discard? And so with this heightened competition for your attention and your affection and the complexity of choices for your own human heart, I think a conference like this really helps us to see things more clearly. And what better theme than the love of God? What better passage than the one we read a moment ago in which our Lord Jesus Christ himself cuts through all the stuff of the day and he gets right down to the issue of the heart for you and for me and for all of us who claim to, to know him. Now, for those of you who take notes, we're going to have three main points. We're going to be looking at the inquiry concerning this great commandment. Secondly, we're going to kind of dissect the instruction that Jesus gives. And then finally, look at the implications to our lives as we look at what the Lord has to give us here in Matthew chapter 22. Let me give you the setting. 
This was the final week of our Lord's earthly ministry. It's Wednesday. He'd already uh, done his thing in the temple and uh, certainly irritated some of the Jews as he disrupted their, their uh, status quo activities. In verses 15 through 22, the Pharisees and Herodians were trying to, to set him up in order to prove that he was a threat to the Roman government. Something I ate, I guess. I don't know what that was. But uh, in verses uh, 23 and following, the Sadducees had, had again tried to discredit him in the eyes of the people of Israel in terms of his stand on certain issues. And now the Pharisees have their time at bat once again, as it says here in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, literally he had gagged the Sadducees, they gathered together and get their own strategy together and come to Jesus with another question. I want you to see four things very briefly about this inquiry. First of all, it was a subtle inquiry. In verse 34, obviously, it says they were gathering themselves together. And it talks about the fact that in verse 35, this lawyer comes forth in order to test him. They were trying to get him literally to contradict something that Moses had said or to place himself above Moses again just to justify their murderous intentions as they dealt with it. So it was subtle. Secondly, it was a sensible inquiry. They chose one who was a lawyer. Now, this wasn't a Johnny Cochran or a, a Robert Shapiro type of lawyer. This was one who literally was schooled in the law, an expert in the law. Mark's account describes him as a scribe, one acquainted with the law, one of the best teachers in the land, who came representing them with a, with a very shrewd but sensible question. Thirdly, it was a specific inquiry. As you probably know, there were 248 affirmative precepts in the Old Testament. There were 365 negative precepts totaling 613, uh, which is the number of the letters of the Ten Commandments. And, and this was all a, a finely tuned system. And so uh, they were wanting him to pick out of this uh, barrage of ideas one thing that would stand out among them all. Not only was it uh, subtle, sensible, and specific, but it was serious. In fact, again, in Mark's account, he, he highlights the curiosity of this particular lawyer who came with, with his own sense of objective interest in the response of Jesus. And Jesus, in fact, when he saw, according to Mark, that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He sensed that there was really a legitimate interest in this man's heart. And obviously this is the issue that deals and has always dealt with God's priority for his people. So that was the nature of the inquiry. Now let's look at the instruction itself. I want you to see, first of all, that what Jesus gave here was an established instruction. This was nothing new, and you know that. As he, re he responds to him in verse 37, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This was an established instruction. We see it back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 in the Shema. Is, it said, The Lord your God is one God. Hear, O Israel, for you shall love the Lord your God. With what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Repeatedly over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, God was telling His people to love Him, to love Him, to love Him many, many times as He laid down His principles for their life. As Joshua spoke at the end of Joshua, Joshua 22, verse 5, he reminded the people of the law of Moses and to be diligent to love the Lord their God. And then in Joshua 23, 11, to take diligent heed to themselves that they would love the Lord their God. And so obviously this was an established instruction, nothing new. But secondly, I want you to see that it was an experiential instruction. It was an experiential instruction, love the Lord your God. Not just have great concepts of Him, although that's vital. Not just think about Him, but love Him. And obviously we're familiar with the need for the experiential side of the Christian life. Lynn Crowley was up here today 
uh, faking us out in the first half of his sermon, making us think he was not cutting it until he got our attention, and then suddenly we realized it has to be more than just didactic ideas. It has to be the reality of our life. That's really the idea Jesus was giving. He says you must love the Lord your God. It cannot be learned from a textbook or a lecture or entertained just as a concept. It must be experienced in your life. And obviously it's a word that cries out for definition, doesn't it? I mean, how casually we use it in our vocabulary. I love my car. I love my dog. I love my dress. I love that tie. You know, I love the Raiders. Isn't it great that they're finally back where they belong, by the way, up in Northern California? Anyway, I love the Raiders. There's a few, all right, good Raiders fans. I love soccer. You know, in the same breath we blow into church, oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. And then we say, oh, I'd love to go to In-N-Out for lunch, right? We just blend it all together. Obviously, in biblical times, we understand the, the concept of agape, the volitional commitment of the life. And there's no such thing in Jesus' understanding of this word as love without action. Let me give you a definition that uh, really I built upon, based upon some things I've heard John and others say. And it would be that love is this. It is self-sacrificing action flowing from the heart, produced by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. Isn't that it? It is self-sacrificing action flowing from the heart, produced by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, he's saying, I want you to act in self-sacrifice flowing from your heart, a love that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God. I love Lynn's concept today of Jesus as our personal trainer. And indeed, that is what he is stimulating within us. He is the trainer within as Ephesians 5, 2 says, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see, in Christ we see the love of God for man. But you know what's great? Is that in Christ we also see man's love for God. This was the one who, who in eternity past enjoyed the, the intimacy of the triunity of God and, and understood perfect love and came and showed us by his life what this experiential reality was as he lived. This is the one who said, I, I only do what, what the, I hear the Father tell me to do. This is the one who, who rose up early before the day and departed into a solitary place and there he prayed. This is the one who took his disciples up to a mount, as we, we know it now, the mount of transfiguration, to understand what it is to, to know the glory of God and to see a picture of that, that fellowship. This is the one who prayed all night long before selecting his disciples. This is the one who, who obeyed and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So our personal trainer is within us, showing us that this is an experiential reality of Him producing by grace a responsive commitment of action, flowing from our heart, produced by His life in us to the glory of God. And of course, thirdly, we see, obviously, it's an extensive instruction. He says, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and Mark adds, with all your strength. Heart being the core of the personality, your soul being the seed of your emotions, your mind being that, that foundation of will, intention, logic, and reasoning, and then strength being your physical energies. It's an all-encompassing reality for you and for me. It came to me that one who loves only with emotions will be a sentimentalist. One who loves only with the will will be a legalist. One who loves only with the intellect will be a rationalist, and one who loves only with physical strength will be an activist. 
But God says, I want all your heart, all your soul, all your will, all your strength. God desires the love of all that I am for Him. That is my greatest pleasure and His greatest joy. As one saint said it, you wish to hear from me why and how God is to be loved? He says, my answer is the reason for loving God is God Himself. And the measure in which we should love Him is to love Him without measure. Isn't that great? Without measure. As Isaac Watts wrote, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? A periodic thought? And every once in a while deed? No, my life, my soul, my all. You say, but Daniel, what does that mean to me? What does that really mean in the way I live and, and in how I view uh, uh, all the inputs in this information age? Well, first of all, Jesus makes it very clear. As we look at the implications now, having seen the inquiry and certainly the importance of this, let's look at the implications of it. First of all, it's placed in Scripture. Notice what Jesus said as you go down to verse 40. He says, on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. You'll notice up in verse 38, he says, this is the great and the foremost commandment. Two salient statements about its place in Scripture and in our lives. Notice in verse 38, the double emphasis. This is the great and foremost commandment. Not only is, is it the greatest, but it is the first in rank and in substance. To illustrate that, uh, we have football playoffs on the mind. And uh, although the San Francisco 49ers won't be first this year, they're still the greatest, Right? And, and there's no debate about that among astute football fans. But, but in this case, this is both the first and the greatest, both in rank and in substance. And that's what Jesus says. Its place in the Scripture is paramount. Obviously, verse 40, it says, Upon this hangs all the law and the prophets, like a peg on a nail upon which you are dependent in order to hang your coat. It must be there. Otherwise, it's all burdensome. I remember visiting a friend of mine. Uh, some of you will recognize the names of Rick and Mick Vignell, two short little crazy twins who sing a lot. And we recorded an album together my freshman year in college. One time I was over at Rick's house, and he had this door in the middle of his, uh, his kitchen just sitting there. And I, I, you know, not being real astute in furniture and things like that, I thought there was some new decoration. And we discussed it, and I realized he just had this door sitting there. He's going to refinish it. But it occurred to me a door is really of little value it doesn't fit in the kitchen, doesn't fit in the living room, doesn't fit anywhere unless it is on what? The hinges. Once it's on the hinges, it has great value. And obviously we understand that all of the teachings and commandments that God has given to us are very important, but they must be hung up on the hinge of that love for God, the reality of a relationship through Jesus Christ that is vibrant and present tense and foremost in our lives. When this first came to me, I was right where you were. I grew up in a fairly fundamentalist background. I mean, uh, uh, we uh, didn't smoke, drink, chew, go with girls who do, you know, and your, your, your spirituality was all based upon what you didn't do and all the rules and all the regulations. And as I remembered that door and that picture to my mind, I, I recalled that that's how my Christianity felt so many times, like carrying a door around, having to do this and not do that. But when I realized that it came down to a love relationship with God as the primary motivation, as Chris talked about that today, as the primary focus, as the ultimate reality of my Christian life, it was so freeing. He talks about its priority in our service here. Everything else hangs upon it. It's been said that you can serve God without loving Him, but you can't love Him without serving Him. How many times, as Chris talked about today, are we busy in the work of the Lord? Again, it is so familiar, but without understanding our love for the Lord of the work. 
First John says in First John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And what? His commandments are not, what is it? Burdensome. That's love. It's desire. It's passion. It's the, the flowing of the reality of the relationship that makes it all worthwhile. And of course, in the Mark account, as the scribe responded, he said to the teacher, he says, Jesus, truly, you have stated to love him is much more than all the burnt offerings and all the great sacrifices. This becomes the motivation behind all that we do. And the scripture speaks about us as primarily lovers of God over and over again. All things work together for good to those who, what? Love God. That love relationship. Philippians 1.9, Paul says, I pray that your love will abound more and more. 1 Timothy 5, but the goal of our instruction is what? Love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Indeed, that becomes the driving reality of our life. As George Sweeting said, living without loving is merely existing, and indeed we have that as our focus. Now, I want to end very practically tonight. I want to talk to you about how you rekindle the reality of that love, not, not the emotion only, not just the thought only, but the mind, the will, the strength, the heart. How do you rekindle that? Because if we were to be very honest, I were to take a poll tonight and say, how many of you would say on a scale of 1 to 10, my, my real understanding of and conscious awareness of and commitment to loving God would be about a 3 compared to what it used to be. Obviously, that's a reality. Christ wrote to the church at Ephesus talking about a love that had been lost in their collective sense. And I want to give you four practical steps to rekindling your love for Christ. The first one would be this. Reflect on God's unconditional love for you. Now, that's not profound. That's really part of the theme of this conference. Um, John has a new book about that love. Obviously, the more we can do to understand the magnitude of His love for me, it is completely freeing. And again, we need to reflect on that love. As it says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God. We were dead. Dead men don't do anything. But that He loved us and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We love because He first loved us. As one writer said, a wise person values not so much the gift of the lover as the love of the giver. It's profound. Have you contemplated His love for you? Again, back in Deuteronomy, He reminded the, the children of Israel that He chose them and set His love on them. Deuteronomy 10, Behold, the Lord your God, again, is the one who did set His affection on your fathers. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. For God so what loved the world. What an amazing thing that is to my heart that there's nothing I could have done to get God to love me. Or to get him to stop to love me. He has made the choice to love me. And that the one who knows me best loves me most is one of the greatest truths of my life. But the question is, do we consciously bring that to mind every day in order to reawaken once again our responsive love to him? As J. Oswald Sanders said, he says, the essence, in its essence, love is the self-imparting quality in the nature of God that moves Him to seek the highest good for His creatures in whom He seeks to awaken responsive love. That's it. And it is indeed the love of God that has been poured out in our hearts by His Holy Spirit that we come to comprehend and that again awakens within us the response to Him. In 1970, Frederick Lehman wrote a hymn which has become one of our best-loved songs 
reflecting on the love of God. And interestingly enough, the third verse of this song was taken from a Jewish poem that was written almost a thousand years earlier by a rabbi in Germany. And this shows the unchanging, unfathomable love of God, both from that Jewish perspective and from a Christian perspective. And you know the verse well. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the sky a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Next week, uh, Wednesday, about 200 people from our church will go away now for the third year in a row for a two and a half, three day prayer meeting. I lead that prayer meeting. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. People take time off vacation. It's something only God has done to awaken this in the hearts of our people. To go with, with literally no agenda except to have our Bibles open and our hearts ready to worship God. For two and a half, three days, we will sing literally, oh, I don't know, 100, 200 songs and hymns. We have song books and hymn books. People will have their Bible open. Hundreds of Scriptures will be read as really it's an intensive time of worship, revelation and response. And in response to their understanding of God from His Word and from sheets that we hand out that speak of the attributes of God, people begin to, to truly respond and open their hearts to God and deal with areas of their lives and, 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 and strengthen relationships. But the highlight of the entire time will come on Friday night, the last night before we go home in which for two and a half, three hours, we will gather around the Lord's table and sing songs exclusively and read Scripture exclusively about the love of God poured out to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a life-changing thing for some of our people who have grown up in homes where obviously the love has been conditional. They've been on a performance basis with parents and authorities where, where suddenly they understand how deeply loved they are and how unfathomable the love of God in Christ is to them and how deeply it touches them at every level of their lives. And that's where it begins, my friend. When you continue to, to reflect in your own heart on the love of God. Secondly, I would challenge you to rekindle this love by remembering from where you have fallen. And for that, I just urge you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. You know the, the passage well. Obviously, as the Lord in His glorious presentation to the churches was speaking to the church at Ephesus. And as there in Revelation 2 and verses 4 and 5, He talks to the church at Ephesus that had lost its first love. And He says to them, I have this against you that you have left that first love. And now, look at the word in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen. Remember, remember indeed where you have, from where you have fallen. I remember in my own life, in my high school years, I, I uh, read in the Scripture how you're supposed to go into your closet. And I didn't know any better. I didn't have much of a hermeneutic, so I cleaned out my closet. And I used to go in my closet and pray. I set up this little light, this little pillow, and, and just pray and read the Bible. It was pretty weird. All my clothes were in the entryway. And, and yet it was a place and a time. And in the simplicity of my, my eager heart, Remember what it was like to be with Him and to fall in love with Him all over again every day as I devoted my energies to Him in those quiet moments. Yet as we get into ministry, we get into the busyness of dorm life, we get into the hustle and bustle of our studies and our academics, the question is, from where have you fallen? 
not just the emotion, but the commitment of life that then made the relationship central. Indeed, that's the question we must, must ask. Thirdly, not only should you reflect on His love for you and remember from where you have fallen, but thirdly, repent of your apathetic condition. Truly, we need to repent. We need to turn away. We need to see that as sin and be broken over the fact that we have neglected that relationship with God. As James Bryden said, love does not die easily. It is a living thing. It thrives in the face of all of life's hazards except one, and that's neglect. To confess the sin of neglect in our relationship to Him and the act of love. And then fourthly, I urge you again, as Jesus said here in Ephesians, not only should you remember and then repent, but thirdly, He says to them, and return. You'll notice that as He says in verse 5. Do the deeds you did at first. Go back to those actions of self-sacrifice that flowed from your heart, born by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. Return to those first deeds of expressed love. About once a year I go away on a three-day retreat. Chris was talking about his, his monthly day of prayer. and I go away for just the joy of practicing a number of disciplines of silence, of fasting, of prayer, of Bible reading. And last spring as I was away, God really spoke to me about this. And he said to me, Daniel, in the hecticness of your life, it seems at times you're fitting me in between the cracks, cramming your time with me in between the openings of the schedule. And he put upon my heart a burden for a special place to be with him. Now, that's not everybody's thing. Again, we can be with him anywhere, anytime. But, but for me, it was almost the focus of finding that closet once again. And I had this vision of a little, a little a, a prayer shed, I call it, out in my backyard and, and a place where I could go away from the phones and away from the noise and, and just to be with God. And in a number of months, a retired man in our church began to build this thing. And now it's finished. It's eight by eight. It has a ceiling about ten, ten feet high with a little ceiling fan and uh, no air con- but electricity. I mean, I'm really suffering for Jesus. A thick padded carpet, you know, it's, it's a great place. A few days ago, um, some men called the pastor's prayer partners came over and we dedicated that. These are men who are just committed to pray for me every day and we meet together about every two months just to pray and to share my heart. And they call in on a voicemail line to get some urgent requests. And we dedicated that thing. But as we sat there, my heart was so touched. And I began to weep in that prayer of dedication saying, God, help me to return to those first deeds of expressed love. They're so easy to get away from. In which indeed with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, I am loving you. Indeed, through Christ my Lord. Close of the final illustration of a lady named Elizabeth Payson Prentice. She lived in the mid-1800s. She was a pastor's wife. Uh, She was married to Dr. George Prentice. She was known as a woman who walked with Christ, strong in spirit but very weak in body. She lived most of her life in excruciating pain. She was a near invalid because of sickness, seldom really knowing a moment without extreme physical discomfort. Eleven years into her marriage while ministering alongside her husband in New York City, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Prentice lost a child to death, their youngest, And then a short time later, another child died, two in a row there within a matter of months. And during the weeks to follow, obviously, with that tragedy occurring in her life, having spoken to my kids tonight on the phone, I was reminded of how excruciating that must be. She, brokenhearted and confused, struggled greatly. And in memoirs that she wrote, it was found later, she wrote these words. She said, I thought that playful boys and girls would fill this empty room that my rich heart would gather flowers from childhood's opening bloom. One child, now two green graves are mine. 
This is God's gift to me. In a bleeding, fainting, broken heart, this is my gift to thee. One evening after returning from home, or from a home visit, Elizabeth and George Prentice were conversing about the struggle that they were going through. And Elizabeth recalled the phrase that her husband had used in a recent Sunday sermon as they discussed it. And the phrase had given her great consolation, and it was this phrase, Love can keep the soul from going blind. Love can keep the soul from going blind. You know, I might just insert, obviously, as all of you are, are facing tremendous decisions. Again, in the information age, tremendous inputs. As you are facing tremendous challenges and some of the most important decisions you'll ever make about career and a life's mate, it's love that can keep your soul from going blind in the midst of it all. Her husband replied as they discussed it. He says, you know what? It's true, my dear. The more we love God, the more we know Him in Jesus, the more His healing miracle takes place in our hearts, and the less we love Him, the less chance there is that we will be able to stand the agony and pain of our loss. Moments later, George had to leave again to go make some pastoral calls, and Elizabeth sat alone in her home. There in the living room, she read Scripture, she prayed, she pondered all that had been said, and looked at the words of some Christian hymns. And during those moments, by the aid of God's precious Holy Spirit, Elizabeth Prentice was able to do that about which we've been speaking tonight. She cut through the confusion and the disappointment of her situation. She rose above the demand and the complexities of ministry. She was able to transcend the despair and the pain, and she wrote a poem, a simple poem, she thought, but a poem that was a sweet covenant between her and her Lord for almost 13 years before it was ever shared with anyone. It remained her secret covenant of love. These were her words. More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. And then in a separate diary, she had further expressed her commitment to obey God's first priority in her life. And these words represent perhaps our deepest desire during these days of all of our lives. She wrote, to love Christ more is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul, out in the woods and on my bed, out driving, when I'm happy, when I'm busy, when I'm sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. May it be that we will reflect on His love for us, that we will remember the reality of that love as it has been so vivid in the journey of our life with Christ, that we will repent of the apathy and neglect and that we'll return to the, the expressed deeds of love. It may be your cry this semester and in this conference. More love. More love. More love. Would you stand with me? And would you join me as we simply sing... And tell the Lord, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to
joy, my King, in what you quietness of this moment of response. Just tell the Lord in your own words that you love Him. And invite the personal trainer of the indwelling Spirit of Christ to awaken in you self-sacrificing action flowing from the heart. Motivated and created by the Spirit of Christ the glory of God. That you would love the Lord your God all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. Lord, we commit ourselves to you tonight in an age unlike any other that mankind has ever known. We can tell you firsthand, as you so well know our hearts, of the competing demands for our affection and our attention, and the complexity of the choices that we are faced with every day. Thank you that in these days we can appreciate your grace. We can think of our motives. We can reflect on your love, remember the the reality of that love in our lives as we walk with You, we can repent of our neglect and we can return to those expressions that You call us to. To live with the resident lover of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, ever filling us and awakening us a day at a time to love You more. And for more love, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Remain standing if you will.